The Real Addicts. Okay, folks, welcome to another episode of The Real Addicts. My name is Matt Flynn, my co-host, Jonathan D'Ambrosio. Jonathan. Welcome all. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here on Black History Month, February. I got my pick this week. This is my final pick of the month. And it is a little film from 1993 called Menace to Society. John, this is a mean movie. It's mean-spirited in its accuracy and its depiction of a lifestyle. I think a lot of people, including myself, when I first saw this, had absolutely no identification with. I had certain identifications with certain small portions, but the rest of it was just this heightened awareness, insane, bizarre kind of wow. This doesn't seem glorified. It doesn't seem glamorized. It just seems raw. And this is one of the first movies that gave me that raw damn. This is what movies can do. Yeah, I think it it was probably one of the first movies that made my stomach turn just because it puts you through a lot. It does. It's not easy at all. And if you haven't seen it, stop listening and go stream it on Paramount Plus. It's free. I think there's another streamer or two that actually has it. You can find it in a lot of places for free unless you don't want to watch it and you just want to listen to us talk about it. And then welcome. I think an interesting place to start for this is where were you in 1993 on this release and when did you first see this movie? So I definitely wasn't at the movie theater. I definitely saw it on home video. I remember getting it from Blockbuster video that that's a video story you can all look that up on wikipedia if you're too young to remember what a brick and mortar video <laughs> story was it was a it was a red box that you could walk around in and <laughs> i just remember that was one of those movies there were a few so i remember kids being categorized as a pretty dangerous film by people men's society new jack city the, the film kids the film kids um, yeah the film kids yeah. But it was one of those movies where there was so much buzz about it and how graphic it was or how disturbing some of the content was. There were a lot of warnings about it, especially with New Jack City. I just remember there being shootings at a movie theater once, I think, and it being perpetuated into there were shootings at every movie theater that people were trying to steer audiences away from New Jack City when it came out. That's such an interesting thing to kick things off with. I first saw this in 94. I was 12 and it was really kind of everything was going in our little white suburb of Massachusetts when it came to hip hop at that point. There'd been a real cultural infusion. And it's interesting too, because I don't know if that's cultural appropriation when everything's Americana, even if it is black culture, it was born here. This stuff happened in America and it wasn't our lives. So in a way it definitely was cultural appropriation, but it wasn't like we were culturally appropriating from another country. It's a weird dynamic to try and suss out in my head. Do you have any thoughts on that? I guess it depends on like what. So obviously there's nothing wrong with fashion. I think when it comes to appropriating it in the way that you act, which I feel when I was a teenager, a lot of white kids were trying to adopt a black attitude from hip hop, which was probably more dangerous than just other things that you could appropriate. 
Agreed. I think that's definitely a huge part of it where people were trying to find a way to exercise hostility and anger that they felt and that undercurrent that was in hip hop and that came out from the black community is in large part what people were identifying with that weren't black. Certainly they were in my neighborhood and where I was growing up and living with people. And that really made us feel seen. So as a result, the other stuff that went along with it that we didn't have an association with as being real life, like murder and carrying guns and dealing drugs, that shit was cool. It was hard. That was a thing that back when I was a kid, like that made you a man. That was tough. And it's interesting to watch this now because it's like having a conversation with somebody and they say one thing in it that sets your brain back and just hits a trauma spot and you don't hear anything else. So you miss the conversation, but you walk away pissed because of that one thing. That's really how I experienced this movie as a younger kid, where it was just so much of the violence and the drug dealing that isn't shot or made to look cool. But the personalities and the laissez-faire, I don't give a fuck kind of attitude, especially from O-Dog, was so celebrated by my friends and I that we missed Charles S. Dutton and we missed the real, hey, this this isn't cool. This shit isn't cool. There's that great DMX song on his first album where the intro is like this guy talking to this kid on the corner and he says, you know, I know your pops, right? He told me he was a little knucklehead motherfucker. And he just says, you see these people out here drinking 40s, smoking blunts. You think that shit's cool? That shit ain't cool. And honestly, for a kid that was going to listen to hip hop anyway, that intro stuck with me. And it was a thing that's like, I'm glad this is here because it is saying this stuff that you think is cool because you're so angry and you're so rebellious right now. It really isn't cool. This is the story of a protagonist named Kane, fresh out of high school, graduated, He's raised by his grandparents. We have a tragic upbringing that necessitated him to go and live with his grandparents to grow up. And this is the summer after high school. They're so proud of him when this opens for graduating during those summer months, because when you have that period of time after high school, a lot of people are getting ready for college. A lot of people are getting ready to join the workforce. They're doing different things. This community is not doing that. We're in Watts. It's Kane's journey from childhood through his high school graduation and the summer that follows. That's the story in Watts, Los Angeles in 1993. Before we jump into what we loved about the film, how crazy is it that the white community's versions of all this, and this just tells you where the culture was at, was can't hardly wait. Mm. American pie. It's the summer out of high school. And isn't life great? And there's every opportunity in the world ahead of you. And, oh, life could be so hard because this guy doesn't like me and I really love him or I can't get the girl that I want. And this is what we're putting out there. It's not a judgment. It's an observation because like that's what they the media culture in America at the time. They didn't want to celebrate black communities. They wanted to look at the dirty, dark, gritty, because that's what America wanted. It's exploitation. The films are not exploitation films as we know them to be from the 60s and 70s that came out in this period with black cinema. They're actual fucking art. Not that exploitation films can't be, but these are pieces of art. However, the media and all of these big mainstream production companies that are making these movies are still searching for representations of a community that keep them oppressed 
that just put it out there that this is what that community looks like. One of my favorite quotes is, art isn't your pet, it's your kid, it grows up and talks back. And I think there's an intentionist fallacy of, you know, you intend something to tell a story and how do the world perceives it as a whole different thing. And I was thinking a lot while watching this movie about that they do it in such a way that it's objective. They don't make it look cool. It is what it is. It's like, here are the facts. Do what do with them what we, what you will. And I think that it's very easy for, and I remember at the time, going back to that films being dangerous, is I think that for the white community, it perpetuated stereotypes. And I think it also led to, they started making movies like it, but for the wrong reasons and not with the same intention. And I think there was almost like a, like copycats that tried to make the gangster life look cool. It creates a run. Right. Of imposters, of inspirational pieces, homages. And that's, that's just human nature. I think that's a good thing. But this movie is so pure and it wasn't made to be exploitative of that by these two guys. This was made because they're like, we're making some real shit that represents our community and what we've seen and what we feel. And it was just, damn, I don't know where these guys lived. I stopped reading. I don't even know if it says where they grew up. I didn't want to know. I have a feeling it's Los Angeles. But my interpretation is this isn't too far off from shit they've seen because it's authentic. It's real. This is real shit. And it really hit home. And I think when I saw this, I was, as I've, most things that I saw at that time, I was too young to see and fully understand. But I really think what landed with me on a subconscious, intuitive level was the purity of the cinema I was ingesting at the time. Yeah, it's an extremely well-made movie. Like the camera works phenomenal, the acting. It was amazing to read that so many of these people were acting for the first time in feature films because their performances are stellar. So well done. Lorenz Tate crushes it, crushes this role. Tyron Turner doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, because this was such a breakout for Lorenz Tate, but he was fantastic in this too. So it's interesting that you brought this up because I had issues with Tyron's performance, but then I saw that, the studio had them go back and add scenes where his character that seems to deviate from the rest of his performance are the ones that the studio inserted. So, so if you kind of, if you take those out and you look at his performance without them, it's a, it's an amazing performance, but the studio's intervention definitely weakened it because it seems inconsistent. I believe it because there's a few points in this that we go off-roading and it gets a little rocky with the edit. The story just suffers a tiny bit. We get back on track, but it's kind of like, did we need that? Yeah. I found myself asking, why did they choose to insert this? And if they had to, why here? But very few directors have carte blanche on Final Cut. I can promise you the Hughes brothers did not have carte blanche on Final Cut for their directorial debut with New Line Cinema. But the film open is one of the most this is on par with american history x for me only it's watchable i can't watch american history x is open it's too much it just crosses some lines for me that personally it's not what i want to ingest artistically this comes close but it stays on the other side of the line where i'm just shocked and stunned by it every time i watch it so you get the new line cinema logo which floats and flies in before it constructs itself over a black screen. And during that, you just hear a door open and two people talking, two kids, you assume, 
and they're talking shit about going to a party and getting women. It's derogatory. It's all kinds of problematic terms, whatever. It's dialogue and it's painting a picture very quickly of who these characters are in their age and their education and their interests. It's really, really well done to set that scene. And then it cuts. It's not a fade in or anything. It's just a hard cut from that logo to Kane and O-Dog side by side walking in. It's Tyron Turner and Lorenz Tate. And they're walking through, a, I believe, Korean-owned convenience store. And immediately while they're talking and they go in and they're getting 40s, it's family-owned. The wife, we're assuming is the wife, is just standing next to them and kind of lingering and pretending to dust stuff. And O-Dog immediately calls it out. It's just kind of like, yo, stop following us dropping all kinds of curse words at her and everything, but still is not threatening. He's just pissed. You're getting this sense of, all right, cool. This is what the black community deals with. Everybody assumes they're stealing stuff. Everybody assumes all this. They're getting followed and they go up to pay for him. And the grocer, he looks terrified and annoyed. Just pay. I don't want any trouble. Just pay now. They get into it a little bit. They pay for their beers and O-Dog's waiting for the change. Kane's taking a few steps. He's taking a sip off of his 40. And as O-Dog gets the change and walks away, the Korean grocer, he says, I feel sorry for your mother. I was reading about the film and the line was originally, get out of here, you ghetto bastard. And they felt like racism is never that overt. It's usually something a lot more subtle. So that's why he's like, I feel bad for your mother. I thought that was such an interesting change because there are times when I see racism portrayed in film and I'm like, oh, no one's going around shouting things like that at people. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are people that do that. But like 90 percent of the time, racism is passive aggression or something else. And I thought that that was good that they made that decision. I think so, too, based on what the alternative was. I got to say that line got me 85 percent of the way there. I don't think it was necessarily forced, but there was something about it because he was so scared and he was just so, ugh, get him out of here to say something that antagonistic, even though it was muttered and under his breath. If I was going to pick something to just not be madly in love with in that first scene, as far as storytelling goes, that would be the one wart that I'd point at a tiny bit. But it was enough to keep things moving. And I think it was the right call to involve his mother it's just, it was very much the move. I don't know what I would offer as an alternative, whether it was a direct oral adjustment to the performance or a line change or whatever, but it certainly worked. I would, I would argue that that's, that's a really great line in the way that they execute it only because I do think the grocer's scared. And I think that it's a antagonistic line, but it's his expression of trying to communicate something to him in a not antagonistic way and the fact that it sets o-dog off so badly you get backstory that you wouldn't otherwise have because you just assume the story of his mother and that she's not around because he just goes off boom that nice zoom into o-dog's turn and reaction to it i'm just what'd you say about my mama i'm please i don't want any trouble i don't want any trouble and it's like man that's it Shoots the grocery, shoots the wife after he goes in the back and gets the videotape for the security footage, which it's 93. It's a VHS tape. You take the VHS, it's gone. There's no hard drive. There's no cloud. The evidence is in his hand. He then robs him. He shakes him down, pulls money out of his sock. He's taking his time and he's angry the whole time. You can tell he's he's pissed, but he's kind of proud and he's got this edge. It's a really interesting character. After O-Dog shakes down everything he can and everyone he can to get all the money, they run out the door. 
and the camera stays in, it goes to black, and we get our first sense of the voiceover narration. That's the through line of the film, which is Kane's voice saying, went into the store to get a beer, came out an accessory to murder and armed robbery. And I think he says something after that, like sometimes it'd just be like that in the hood sometimes or whatever it is. But like that first line of just, because I think all of us understand I went to go do a thing and something crazy. Like, how did this even happen? So there's a relatability to that, but it's also the most extreme relatability I think you could ever have where two murders just occurred. Off camera, which was surprising because I remember seeing it and thinking that I saw it on camera, but they don't show either of those on camera. They, they show him on the ground. You never see her again, right? The camera's on Kane when he shoots the grocer and then he chases her into the back and they stay in the store when that when you hear the gunshot in the back. Yeah. And I won't be breaking down every scene like this. I just want to paint the open. Yeah. The open is so important in film. And this is no exception because now you're on the ride. You didn't even have time to put your seatbelt on and you're just moving. So we find out later on that O-Dog isn't even 18. So he's a 17 year old kid. Kane's 18. And they have no problem selling beers to these kids. That's an interesting statement in and of itself on this community. Even L.A., in this particular part of the city, in the early 90s, it was the Wild West. Like It wasn't being policed. They probably weren't sending people in to do stings to see if the Korean grocer in Watts was IDing people. You know? And, and it's, fuck, man. All this stuff is just every man for himself and anything goes. Yeah, so we get into the Wayback Machine after that, and we go to the Watts riots in 1965. Yep. And in for the, the opening credits. Yeah, yep. And in the voiceover, Kane says, when the riots stopped, the drugs started. And it was really interesting because we come full circle at the end of the film, generationally, with what we see at the beginning. His father was a drug dealer. His mother was a junkie. And she was just a dope fiend that wasn't around. And she's always in and out of a nod. And they're always throwing parties at the house. Sam Jackson plays the father. And he comes out in the stoop. And there are these two younger kids, one named Parnell. And he is just talking to him and bullshitting with him. And he's five. And they think it's funny to give, give him a beer. No, they give him booze. I think he's got cognac. He's like, he has a crazy reaction. It's like everybody laugh. Ha ha ha. The kid didn't like the taste of booze. And then he's got a gun that he's playing with. And his mom comes outside and just, boy, what are you doing out of bed? Get in the house. Doesn't even notice the gun. Doesn't care. She's in a dope nod. You can tell if he doesn't move, he's going to get whacked. And she just doesn't care. He sees his father shoot somebody in the house. And he says, that was the first time I'd ever seen my father kill somebody, but it wasn't the last. I got used to it, though. And that last part of it, just I got used to it, though. It just tells you who this guy is. And it's just, man, you're okay. We're in this now. And dad gets murdered. Mom is an addict. So he goes to live with his grandparents. Eventually, mom dies. We don't see any of this. We just hear it in the voiceover narration to get him with his grandparents. And... They are very, very much that prototypical religious Christian grandparent quoting the Bible. I think that's what made me identify, too, with these characters was the people that were trying to promote goodness and doing good 
oftentimes had religion at their back and that meant nothing to me. And Bible quotes meant nothing to me, except like these people don't get it. And maybe they get it more than anybody. I don't know. I still, at my age, have no idea. But at the time, I didn't want to hear it. And here are these grandparents representing the good life. And it's a humble home. And when we fast forward into the film later on, Kane's grown and now he's Parnell. Parnell's in jail. Ronnie, Jada Pinkett Smith, the mother of Parnell's child, his son, Anthony. And he's always over the house and seeing her and the kid. And the kid's also five. They're playing with a gun at one point because he takes it out to play video games with the kid and put it on the floor. And the kid wants to play with it. And he unloads the gun and shows him how to hold it. And when Jada Pinkett Smith comes in, she loses her mind and she cares. It's a really interesting depiction of parenting and how that evolved and how when you're doing the right thing for yourself, you can show up for your kids in a way that's practical for them. People need discipline. And she's trying to keep her kid on the straight and narrow in a community that's really difficult to keep kids on the straight and narrow. And so my grandmother always says, you know, these things don't come with instruction manuals. And she also likes to say, all you can ever hope for is that your kids do a little bit better than you did. It's nice to see that through line in this is that there are people trying to make things just at least a little bit better than they had it. And you can see that in this movie. And if anything, that's probably the most positive, hopeful sentiment in the film. Which there is not a lot of. And it's funny because reading about it, the original cut was a lot darker and the studio had them add some things in it to make it more hopeful. And I'm just very curious what the original cut was like, because it is still incredibly dark and nihilistic, I would say. Yeah, it is very much so. And usually I dislike any studio involvement. This is a case where I think whatever they agreed on was probably the right thing to release because there's only so much people were ready for. Even if the truth is a lot darker and they just needed to exercise that, it, I don't know how available that would have been for public consumption based on what people were ready to actually ingest at that time. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's probably a good thing. And it still doesn't, it's not toothless at, in the least. It is very, no. very, yeah. It's got fangs. Yeah. You're in Watts 93 now and that helicopter shot with the backing music from Ghetto Bird, which hadn't, I don't know if it had been released yet, or maybe it had and they hadn't gotten the rights to it, but it's so affecting and it's so LA. It immersed me right into this thing. And I'm like, man, oh, okay, cool. We're in 93 now. And there's this great line that the grandfather has for Kane at one point where he's walking out the door and he's leaving with old dog. God knows what they're going to do. And he just yells outside. They're in the courtyard for a project, I guess. And he just says, Kane calls after him. Yeah. Do you care whether you live or die? And he thinks about it. Kane just takes a moment and thinks. And he just shakes his head and says, I don't know. Uh, that scene was amazing. I love the lighting at the grad night house party. Mm. Again, it's mean. It's and cold. It's blue. It's harsh. And it's a single tracking shot. Yeah, it goes right through the house and you're into the back. And what's O-Dog doing but talking about the security tape that he has shown yeah, to everyone. everyone. I loved cinematically so much of this. A lot of it, that the Crenshaw red light pan up. Like the it just, effect. 
boom, he gets shot and his cousin gets murdered in a carjacking. The, the carjacking is hard to watch. And the way that Harold dies in the street and he's convulsing and seeing Kane being brought into the emergency room when he's like bleeding from the mouth and can't breathe. Tough to watch. I think that was the first violent scene I had watched as a child where I was like, oh, this is real. Like, this is not like a fight scene in a movie. This is somebody really getting hurt. And it was tough to watch. But I like that the Hughes brothers captured it in that way. But also, I love that they contrast it with the next day after he leaves the house. O'Dog's making fun of him for not taking it like a man when he got shot. And then Kane starts making fun of O'Dog. He's like, I heard you. He's like, you were crying, worried about me. And they Stay just- up, Kane. <laughs> Don't die. Yeah. Um, like, man, shut up. And it is. It, but that that gives you like a really cool innocence of kids teasing each other over these insane circumstances. Yeah, I thought that that was a really good way to add an element of reality to it because I could see people having that conversation, especially when you have gallows humor and you're trying to diminish how intense the situation is. All this stuff's going on. They're talking about they got to get retribution. They end up going and they end up killing the guys that shot his cousin and that shot him. So there's this tit for tat, eye for an eye. And it's fascinating, too, because we're dealing with a resistance to the biblical from the grandparents, specifically the grandfather. And yet they're reenacting Old Testament shit in the streets. So when they go to get retribution, they're in the car and O'Dog's talking about killing them. And Kane says, I'm not killing any women. and I'm not killing any children. And it's a mm-hmm. very it's a very adamant point that he makes, which I thought was a really important line. I thought the line that he has with the grandfather when he says, I don't know. And then that line in the car, it's interesting how there are callbacks to it later. It is. It is interesting. And it's also interesting. O'Dog's response is, man, I'll kill anybody, man, anybody. And we're in this car cruising through Watts, looking for the people that they're going to murder. And there's so many allegories in this movie. And at that moment, like it's basically like a ride along in the back of a Jeep in Vietnam. These are soldiers. They're really portraying the role of soldiers. And I think they think of themselves in some sense as soldiers. And that could just be two guys in the Marines going to kill people, one with a very strict, no women, no children. And the other like, yeah, I'll kill anybody. I don't care. Whatever we're here to kill. The way they shoot these kill scenes, it's slow-mo, it's ruthless, but the, the shots themselves just show you so much. The way when they go up, it's like a fast food fish fry kind of place. And nothing in this place, you're not seeing the golden arches, you're not seeing, and they're paying for advertising, for branding. Everything is a gated window with bars that could be any place and the the plexi behind it's dirty. So all of this stuff's happening. They're at one of these places, the guys who had shot Kane and Harold and they throw on ski masks, Kane and O'Dog and come around and shoot him. And one starts running away shot and he's trying to get away. AWACS is in the car and he jumps out and he comes around and he goes, yo homie, you need some help. And he kind of hugs him and the camera has got the guy who shot on his back and AWACS looks like he's hugging him and helping him. And you don't see that he's pulled the gun and he just pulls the trigger. This giant looks like a 357 and it just explodes on his back a couple times. And it's like, come on, get in the car. It's just like, it's like he found a quarter on the street. It was that easy for him to just come up and pick it up and get it back in the car. Hey, let's go. 
really fascinating scene, but I really think it's important, and we kind of already have, to point at what people in this community use to escape the violence. What do they use to get out? What can they get out? It's very religious for a lot of folk. You have the grandparents with Christianity. You have Sharif with the Muslim religion. But the other side, it seems like the only other prong for escape is education, where Ronnie is very much focused on going to school. She constantly talks about going to school and she's moving to Atlanta. That's the whole thing about the escape. There's the Kansas offshoot for education or there's the Atlanta offshoot for education. And Kane doesn't have to go to school, but Ronnie wants him to go with her and Anthony, her son, to Atlanta, where she will continue to go to school. So those are the two big things. You got religion and education as means of escape from the violence and the horrors of this community. And they do a really good job of just pointing that out without beating you over the head, I think. I want to talk a little bit about status in this, especially for young men. First and foremost, these are wildly enterprising young men. And without guidance, you have what you have in this community. And by guidance, I mean proper male influence. I mean societal support. Guidance of all kinds. But when you really break down what Cain does to cut his drugs up and what they do when they're boosting cars and O-Dog with the, uh, the thought, at least, of selling his murder tape and making it. And these are really enterprising guys that if they had a little guidance, and certainly in 2024... I mean, they'd be running some wild e-commerce businesses. They'd be doing some really nuts on the level stuff. They had really sharp brains. And the status of things in that neighborhood at that time was about the flash. A big part of that flash were the rims, rims in your car. So Kane goes and jacks somebody for his car, for his rims. What that says about status and it's not just, quote, unquote, people like, oh, that's like ghetto status, hood status. No, it isn't. This stuff permeates. It goes everywhere. I was on Abbott Kinney Boulevard yesterday in Venice, and I went to a store with a buddy, and I bought this hat for 60 American dollars like an asshole because I wanted to buy something. And I needed a beanie, and I liked it, so I bought it. But I didn't wear it out. And this is a damn near 42-year-old man talking and admitting this. Because he offered me a bag and I said, no, I'll just wear it out. And then I went, wait a minute. Actually, do you have like a cool bag? I'll take a bag. And he threw this beanie in a bag so that I could walk down Abbott Kinney with a bag in my hand as a status symbol of I bought something here. That's some dumb shit. It's the keeping up with the Joneses. I want to look good mentality. Again, going back to how we plotted out these films accidentally, but in a way that really worked in our favor was calling back to do the right thing with Demare. And we had that conversation about opportunities for Black men in the 80s versus earlier. I think it's important to call out the fact that, especially because drugs were very ubiquitous in lower income communities and with the crack cocaine boom of the, the 1980s, that was a tectonic shift in culture for anyone mm -hmm. in the Black community. Just because how much that's leading to, to violence because you have people who are high out of their mind doing whatever while they're high out of their mind. And then also as a means of income, because nothing's really happening in education, but there's people asking for drugs everywhere. There's money to be made. 
And plus, as the movie Traffic points out, you have white people showing up in black communities asking for drugs all the time. And it's just, oh, here's a way for me to make lots of money. And why wouldn't I do that? One of my favorite lines from the film is there's a conversation about drugs in it and uh, drug dealing. And somebody goes, you know, it took private jets to get that stuff here. And I don't know anyone who owns a private jet. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a very good point, because who is bringing that into communities? Because it's certainly not starting there. No, it isn't. It's not popping up from the ground. I mean, it might be today a little bit for certain drugs, but not back then. then it certainly wasn't. And most of it still is not. Right. Those are really good points and associations. And I love how this movie has a white guy show up into the black community, not for drugs, but for business, quote unquote. He wants a car stolen. He wants a very specific car and he knows what neighborhood to come to, but he's afraid to come at night Yeah, when he's asked to come back later. And he's kind of kicked in the ass. It's like, oh, what? You can't come here at night? You can come here and ask a black man to steal your car during the day, but you can't come at night for business? Get the fuck out of here. It was just a really interesting thing to point at. It's not just drugs. You know, it's a different... There's all kinds of shit that's associated with criminal activity that people in the white community at times seem to rely on the black community to do their dirty work for or to supply them with. Yeah, another car boost. You know, they get dropped off to boost the car. O-Dog goes, he doesn't even go to juvie. He gets left off, let off of the warning because he is a, a minor. minor still. Right. But what's wild is that now we're in an interrogation room with the one guy you don't want to be in an interrogation room with, and that's Bill Duke. This was interesting because I think it inspired some clockers stuff for Spike Lee down the line. Like yeah. these guys are going to inspire each other. And the 360 degree camera work, the way it just spins around the table. The lighting in that scene is also because you have the other police officers in the background. They're just standing there in shadows. You can just see them in silhouette. They're mm. against the windows and you have the camera dawing around the table. And as soon as Kane slips up and he says, I think he says 1215 instead of 1115 or, or one or the other, like he changes the time. And that's when it starts to juxtapose the editing because then it starts contrasting which direction the camera's going in depending on who it's on. So when it's on Bill, oh, when it's on Bill Duke, it's going one direction. And then when it's on Kane, it's going the other direction. It's dizzying. I'm as nauseous and, and disoriented as Kane is just because of the camera work and because Bill Duke cannot be rattled. I mean, this is a man who dry shaved throughout all of Predator and the jungles and you can't shake him. He's just sitting there when he's across that table interrogating. I honestly can't think of a single person I would rather be interrogated by less and he, he just stonewalls him and freaks him and he gets him back to the corner and he's got the, another line that always stuck with me that i quote all the time to this day you know you done fucked up you see that you know you done fucked up you know that don't you and it's one of those things where you're caught and you can't get out of it and somebody calls you on it and just so much so that afterwards it's like, you know that don't you you know you don't fucked up Calling back to Creed with absent father figures and black masculinity, because both of those are explored a lot in the film or portrayed a lot in the film. And neither of them, the Hughes brothers, don't really point that out. Like you have the grandfather, right? And you have Charles S. Dutton. But other than that, you have no parental figures whatsoever in their lives. And the black masculinity piece, going back to that scene mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier with them making fun of each other for how they were acting when they were shot. But there's also the scene when... O-Dog is in the alleyway with the junkie and the junkie doesn't have any money. And he goes, I'll suck your dick. And he goes, what'd you say to me? And he shoots him because he's so offended. 
it's a callback to that earlier scene when the guy says something about his mother. It's just, it's a line that gets crossed that he can't allow to be crossed. I had such relatability in my neighborhood growing up to that line because there was so much homophobia. Like we'd always laugh and be like, and y'all want a cheeseburger? Because that's what he does. He's like trying to offer him the cheeseburger for crack. And he says, nah, man, get the fuck out of here with all that. And he's like, I'll suck your dick. I'll suck your dick. He's like, what'd you say to me? Shoots him. And then he picks up the bag with the cheeseburger in it. And he does it so casually. I mean, he looks down the alley at AWACS and the girl that are looking back at him. Like, what the fuck are you doing, man? And he just raised up. He's like, and y'all want a cheeseburger? And that was funny to us. Like growing up, that was funny because it was a very homophobic, like, oh yeah. You say nasty things to people if you wanted to emasculate them about being a homosexual. And that was a negative thing. That was acceptable practice because it protected male fragility, ego fragility, toxic masculinity that was ingrained in us culturally. And it's nuts to look back at. If I'm ashamed of anything growing up, and again, I didn't know what I didn't know. And a real crime isn't being ignorant. It's not fixing it when you do know better. But if I do carry any kind of regret towards the way I behaved growing up, as far as the things I said, the words I used and the names I called, it would be homophobia. Also, here's the thing. I knew gay people and I had gay people in my life and I loved them unconditionally. It was the shame that I would try and put other people through and humiliation with name calling words that would emasculate them that were associated with yeah. homosexual acts or behaviors or preferences that just make me feel like not the move. Yeah. I think it's going back to the discussion of black masculinity. I think it's a lot more difficult for homosexuals in the black community for, for them to come out. I think it's much easier to be a white man who is homosexual than the cultural stereotypes that are portrayed, especially with like rap music and in movies. And not to reference this other piece of media again, but I'm, I'm glad that we are because I think it's so important is I can't think of a more terrifying person in, in any film or television. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Than Omar Little in The Wire. And it's just like, and how they put like, and it's a perfect portrayal of like, yeah, he is, this is who he is. And he is also homosexual, but he is a dangerous person that walks down the street and everyone throws their money and drugs out the windows because they don't want to deal with them. Yeah. That was a really important piece of social commentary and history for the homosexual black community for sure. And I love that he's gay and everybody loves that he's gay. I think because it just paints a picture of something different and important to be represented. The male yeah. ego fragility that we're talking about, I think really ties in well to the fight with Chauncey. So yes. Chauncey is this, is this character we haven't referenced yet, but if you've seen the movie, you know who Chauncey is. He wakes up late. He's the guy who's going to steal a car for the white guy that comes to the neighborhood. He's just a dick. And he shows up at this party that Ronnie's throwing. It's a farewell party. He's drunk as hell. And he's probably one of the most predatory characters I've seen on film when he's drunk and he just won't keep his hands off her. And she pulls Kane into a room and they start to talk and they hook up and they hadn't done that before because that's, that's Parnell's girl. So it's a line Kane doesn't cross, even though he might be attracted to her. They hook up at the party. They go back to the party and Chauncey gets handsy with her and he won't stop. And Kane says, Oh dog to Oh dog, you strapped. He's like, you know it. And he hands him his gun and he just runs up and Kane starts pistol whipping Chauncey. Bad. 
him repeatedly to the point that he could kill him. And he's just, he can't let it go that this woman's been disrespected. And again, that to me was inspirational. That's what you do when your girl's disrespected. That's what you do. You go wild. When you've been disrespected, when your woman's been disrespected, that's how you react. That's what I was taught when I saw stuff like this because it resonated. So Chauncey rats him out for the tape. And ultimately, that implicates both O-Dog and Kane for murder. So now they're on the hook. And that's a wrap. It hasn't happened yet. Nothing really goes down. But we know the clock is ticking. And this is just a matter of time. They go to see Purnell before they leave in prison. Ronnie and Purnell don't have much to say to each other. Purnell tells her he loves her. But she's just angry. You can tell she's just angry. And she does this to do this, to go see him. But she doesn't have any love for him and any love she does have is hardened over. And he just says, let me talk to Kane. And he re- he recognizes that she has feelings for Kane and he says, he's cool with it. And he has this great line where he just says, take care of my son, teach him better than I taught you teach him. The way we grew up was bullshit. And that last line, that last sentence, teach him the way that we grew up was bullshit. When everything is so like your whole identity, when you're a kid thinking that you're tough or hard or trying to be is wrapped up in that. And to admit that that was bullshit, I think is an important time in a man's life, anybody's life. If women feel that way too, but certainly for young men to reach that point, it's like, that was bullshit. The way we grew up, what we thought that's not it. And a lot of what adulthood is, is recognizing and healing from and unpacking a lot of that stuff. Kane gets a little emotional in that scene, and it seems like he is. It's one of those two scenes where I'm. I felt like it was inconsistent because it didn't feel like him. He feels like pretty hardened, and it seemed like he was very vulnerable in that scene. The other scene was when his grandparents kick him out, and he is pleading with them. And I was just like, I don't see him doing that. I see him at no point did he get angry with his grandparents, and I feel like he would have. Like I think that he had that. I don't think he would have just like sullenly walked away. I think he would have put up a fight with them and just like let them have it. But he doesn't. Disagreed. Okay. And here's why. They're the only people that took him in and they didn't have to. They're the only people that showed him respect. And like I said, he has this deep resonance somewhere in him of vulnerability and respect, even though it's muddled by this angst. And there's something about respect for your grandparents grandparents especially not just parents but grandparents where i bought that hook line and sinker i fell for him just being sad being upset like he is being abandoned and shut out even if he is going to go and he he does just want to stay until he has to leave and it showed the little boy in him and i think that little boy does exist and it's the only characters in the film they're the only characters in the film where that i think it would be right to show that little boy come out it wouldn't make sense to put it anywhere else, but to have okay. these people that changed his diaper and wiped his ass, you know, he can be a little boy. And, and this is his moment to his last real straw of vulnerability. And I love that you brought this up because the thing that stuck with me from that exchange wasn't that they kicked him out. It's that the grandfather looks at him and says, you're bad. And from a religious man, the implications of that statement as a stone fact and just washing your hands of a person, that's that. And at that point, basically the impetus for the ending is he gets with the girl whose number he got that he picked up with and said, take care of that body, all right? He had this terrible, terrible pickup scene. For whatever reason, it worked. 
and he got with her. We don't see or hear from her again until she calls him, but we hear that he had been with her. He's bragging about it to, uh, to I think, O'Dog, one of his friends anyway. She calls up and tells him she's pregnant. He says, what's that got to do with me? I had a Jimmy on extra tight. No way, it's mine. And that's that. And she's got that great line. Oh, so you're man enough to take a life, but you're not man enough to raise one? And he's like, yeah, whatever. And just hung up the phone. Her cousin comes. He's looking around and stuff. He's like, what's up, partner? And the way he talks and everything. And Kane's not taking him seriously when the guy's talking about how he doesn't like how he's been treating his cousin. And he gets a little in his face and Kane just beats the shit out of him right in front of his grandfather's house. O-Dog kicks him when he's down. And the cousin goes back. We're back to the male ego and fragility and the eye for an eye, all this stuff, the vicious cycle. And moving day, Anthony, the five-year-old boy, Ronnie and Parnell's son's on, on the big wheel and he's in the front yard. Sharif and Stacy are helping load boxes with O-Dog into the minivan. Ronnie and Kane are going to go to Atlanta. This is all happening. And you see these guys get ready. The girl's cousin rolls up with his crew and they're just, we don't know any of these guys. We haven't seen them. It doesn't matter. They could be anybody because that's just how this is and what's being portrayed. And they just have this really slow-mo heartbeat roll up where they're hanging outside the car. I remember that guy from a kid just hanging outside in the back seat in the driver's side, just sitting on the windowsill, perched up and it slows down to a stop. And then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. The guns are going off. Kane gets shot endlessly. His last move is to try and protect Anthony. We don't know if Anthony got hit. We just see his big wheel upside down. Sharif is shredded dead instantly. Just cut down a ton. O-Dog shooting back. Stacy and O-Dog unharmed. Ronnie comes outside and they she turns Kane over and Anthony's fine underneath. I don't know if there was a different ending or if you know anything about what the studio had to say about that, but I'd like to think that they stayed true to that and just gave gave Anthony some hope. But it it's a flashback at that point with the heartbeat sound kind of underscored to his life as we've seen it, to Kane's life. And just looking back, and it just says, uh, you know, my grandfather once asked me if I cared whether I lived or die. Yeah, I do. And now it's too late. And it just cuts to black, man. And that MC Eight song, Straight Up Menace, with those piano keys starts, and it just gives the Hughes brothers directed by. And it's, it's so affecting. It's just such an affecting moment in that movie. And it's such a beautiful use of music. It's such a hard ending, but a true to the story we just watched ending. I really loved it. What'd you think? I did love the ending. I think I think it's a callback earlier. I brought up that line about I won't kill any kids. And then he ends up trying to protect a kid with his last act on Earth. Yeah, it's powerful. It's extremely powerful. It is. It's heavy duty stuff, man. And that's menace. I was looking up statistics and I was seeing how there are 500 homicides between 1989 and 2005 in the neighborhood that it takes place in. And that means there's 31 homicides a year, 2.5 a month for that for that neighborhood. But the really interesting thing is that is two square miles. And just to put that into perspective, Manhattan is 22 square miles. So it's 11 times the size of that. And there wasn't nearly, it's just, that's just insane to me that you're talking about that amount of square footage in real estate and that many people getting killed in that amount of time. Yeah, that's a per capita nightmare. 
Yeah, there was a review that I re read, and then there were some IMDb comments, and I just want to I want to read them, and then I want to hear your your take on them. So I will read them, and then you tell me what you think. So the review is. Unlike John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, with its rich, defined characters and hopeful family values, Menace to Society perpetuates the fears of middle America. These kids are mostly without morals or redemption, and their bloody deaths seem like mercy killings rather than tragedies. Those who don't live in these mean streets will shake their heads and figure that Menace to Society merely reinforces their negative presumptions about minorities after all. Rather than being a positive step toward a solution, this one-sided inflammatory film and its after effects on impressionable youth may be yet another menace to American society to suffer. From an actual film critic. And then, so these are IMDb reviews from just audience members. I found no sympathy in the main character, Kane. He is more like the jerks we see in Goodfellas casinos in the great American epic, The Godfather. Yes, this film belongs in that genre. It just has a black face. I was offended at the time when the studio tried to market this movie with Boys in the Hood. The two movies are completely different. Just because it deals with African-Americans, it doesn't make the two films similar. And what is up with the ghetto films, in quotes? I haven't heard such racist remarks in a while. So many complained about black exploitation films year before. Menace to Society, however, is the real offensive stereotype. To say that one film is the real deal for poor African Americans is a sham, and this movie has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Another one. This movie deserves none of the accolades it got. First off, the authenticity talked about in other reviews about ghetto life is so ridiculous, I can't express how ignorant those people are. I grew up poor, so while I'm white, I can relate on some level to a lot of the trials of young black men in movies like Boys in the Hood. That movie seemed pretty accurate. Those were just normal lower middle class to poor kids caught up in awful circumstances. Their lives resembled the rest of America in a lot of ways, but were punctuated by brief bouts of extreme gang and drug related violence. That's pretty close to real. Menace to society, more like menace to reality. For one, there's no way a neighborhood could get this bad without the National Guard getting called in. I'm not kidding when I say that the level of violence and the frequency with which it is portrayed in this movie would make it worse than a literal war zone. And then one last quote I, I read that I thought was good. From the beginning to end, I cringed at the nonsensical violence to the utter toxic masculinity that was displayed on all levels. Now you may rebut Matt Flynn. In reverse order, the last quote, if that is true and life and art are based on perception, and if that's your perception, then what a beautiful way to illustrate it and what that person had perceived as complete cartoonism in an effort to look at it backscaled through the lens of what does exist. Sometimes it's really nice to go way over the top to see what's actually there in a clearer sight line. So that would be my unsolicited advice for that person. For everybody else, man, first of all, the white guy, it's like telling an architectural engineer how much you can relate to them because you put together an Ikea dresser once. It's not the thing. That's not it. And, and the fact that he had to say it is just, you don't get it. None of us do. That's why we're watching. To everybody else, especially the main reviewer, I would just like to use the two-word tagline from American Beauty and say, look closer. And you're, you're surface leveling it and doing yourself and the movie a disservice if all you're seeing is the top layer. Yeah. And I think that that's one of those things where I think people feel more comfortable to insulate themselves in any way possible rather than face the reality of it. And Absolutely. 
this isn't real or this is just racist propaganda and yeah you're just invalidating it and anybody who has that lived experience let's let's nail a couple categories yeah. Do you have a favorite quote what's your favorite quote on this my all-time quote is from uh charles dutton and it's his character when he says now i'm no muslim but i agree with some of the things they say regarding black people and if allah helps to make him a better man than jesus can then i'm all for it i, I love like, that one too it's a great line and then the yeah. other line the line's a throwaway but it's when chauncey's at the party and and Kane says something to him. He's like, no, 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 it's cool. It's cool. It's like your girl. It's your girl. And he walks away and he goes, cock blocking motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) This movie arguably is as quotable as the big Lebowski. Like every line of dialogue, if you wanted to, like it just holds merit. A lot of it. Like I said, once you get out of the after school, especially stuff with Ronnie at times, the dialogue is just so it's either weighted in like a really profound way or there's humor immersed in it. It's great. I got to stick with my build, my all-time Bill Duke line. I'll see you now. You fucked up. You know that, don't you? Yeah, you don't fucked up. You know that, don't you? I love that, man. It just, it, it goes with me everywhere I go. I say it to myself. I say it to other people. It's a good line. As far as a dark horse performance, I would say it would probably have to go to Bill Duke. I'm sticking with him because he's just so... You get him for such a short window and he's so affecting. He would be my my dark horse for sure. What about you? What do you have for a dark horse? Uh, dark horse Candy Alexander, who plays Kane's mother in the earlier scene opposite Samuel L. Jackson. And that's just because Candy Alexander is one of my favorite actresses and she's phenomenal in everything. And she's in the she's in it for 45 seconds, but she plays a smack addict. It is a very authentic performance. Yeah, she's fantastic. She really yeah. is. That is a great. A great performance. It's a good yeah. call. Favorite supporting, I got to give to Glenn Plummer. I was I was struggling. It was either Glenn Plummer because I love him in everything, especially because he was in like South Central and his cameo in the Speed movies. But I got to go Charles Dutton, rock. Like it's just, yeah. he is so, man, does he have presence. He does. He does, man. He made Alien 3 great. Yeah. Like, I mean, he makes everything great. <laughs> I'm in. I'm totally in. Yeah, Glenn Plummer... <laughs> The speed cameo is fantastic, uh, but he's got a really long storied career. He's done a lot of great work. Yeah. And I, I think his portrayal of Purnell, especially from the uh, the early days with Kane and then the jail scene, I just really appreciate it. He's also phenomenal in Showgirls. The two, no, the two best performances by Glenn Plummer. One is uh, as Jericho won in Strange Days. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's definitely going to be one. Stop. You don't know if I've ever seen Strange Days? (laughs) I don't know. The other one, and it's his best performance, bar none, because it steals the entire movie, as have you seen The Salt and Sea? Oh, you know, I haven't. He plays, he is, he plays a tweaker named Bobby and he is out of his mind in the, in the movie. And he's so good. Yeah. Cool. Donna and Diane, this is a real quick conversation. No, no, mom, if you're listening, don't even try it. Yeah, I I actually think my mother walked in on me and my buddy Nick watching it when we were watching it, and she did not have anything nice to say. She's like, what the hell are you two watching? Matt, if you had to switch out any casting decisions in this movie with Crispin Glover or Tilda Swinton, who would it be? I don't know if this is a really hard or really easy thing to do in Black History Month. I think more often than not, it's just been really easy because Tilda Swinton and Creed as 
Ricky Conlon's manager was in a layup. I think just as that was simple, having Crispin Glover stand in for the gentleman who wanted to have a car stolen for him is the only answer and absolutely should have happened. Yes, that is the only answer. And you got it right. Um, and then the, the shock meter. The shock meter for me is completely and totally great movie. And I loved it. I'm going to say great movie. I have trouble saying I loved it just because it's just very like I, I really appreciated it. And I'm going to use that in place of love, but I can't I just can't say love. So that's it for Menace to Society. My last pick for Black History Month. Thank you so much to the Hughes brothers. And for all of you for listening, Jonathan, farewell, my good friend. Thanks for doing this. Yes. Thank you all for listening and look forward to our next episode, which is, are we announcing it? Yeah. Our next episode will be on the film, The Hate You Give, which will be our yes. last, last film of the month. Hell yeah. Thanks again, everybody. Take Thank care. You.